You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In fairy tales, we sometimes hear of a person who's learned the language of the birds, which reveals to them a secret of some kind, a secret that they could not have learned unless they'd listened in. I'm Jim Metzner, and this is The Pulse of the Planet. Today, Megan Gall will be sharing a few of the secrets of birdsong with us. Megan is an associate professor of biology at Vassar College who's been studying sensory ecology, the way birds and other animals respond and interact with their environment through their senses. There seems to be a subtle kind of reciprocity, a give and take in this interaction. It's what scientists call a feedback loop. this intriguing idea of feedback loops and maybe we could start with what a feedback loop is I mean it's in sound of course if there's a feedback it's because I'm putting the microphone too close to a speaker and you get that squeal but in ecology and the natural world of what is a feedback loop from that point of view yeah, it's the same thing as, as feedback in sound, right? The reason you're getting that squeal is because the microphone is picking up the sound, which is then producing the sound the microphone picked up, and you get this back and forth and back and forth. And in the natural world, we see the same thing at all kinds of levels. So in behavior, if we're thinking about individual organisms, a feedback loop might be one bird sings a song, another bird hears it and responds either with another song or with a mating advance or something like that, mm. which then changes the behavior of the, in, the first bird, which mm. produces a new signal, which changes the behavior of the other bird, and we get this feedback between them that is producing a unique behavioral interaction. In ecology, we think of it as the ways that different organisms could be different species, it could be birds and vegetation, it could be birds and, and other kinds of organisms, the way that they interact and affect one another. And the fact that that process doesn't just happen once, it continues to happen. So each change begets a new change. Whoa. Now, birds and vegetation. Now, what is the relationship between birds and vegetation? That's such an intriguing prospect. That's right. So we're not talking so much about communication now, but certainly there are ways in which animals have preferred food sources, for instance. So if you have, you know, one of these pokeweeds that's showing up everywhere, they produce berries, the birds eat the berries, the birds move somewhere else and deposit the berries, and now there's more pokeweed, uh, which means they'll have more poke berries to eat. So we can think of it in that scale. We can also think of it as an acoustic environment. 
the way that birds are producing vocalizations, they're often overlapping with other species, and the vegetation structure might determine where the birds may decide to sing from. So if you have mockingbirds around you, you know that they like a big open area, and so they'll sit at the top of vegetation. And so if there are individual trees where they can sit and announce, they're going to choose those environments. And because they're choosing particular environments to sing from, they're also going to be foraging there, which again might change sort of the structure of the habitat. So it's a feedback loop because if I'm a, a bird that's hanging out in one particular area by the fact that I'm spreading the seeds and so forth and pooping there, I'm influencing that environment just by the fact that I'm, I'm spending more time there, right? That's right. You know, it also brings to mind something to me like um, woodpeckers. I mean, woodpeckers don't just peck anywhere. They're pecking for a reason. They're going after grubs or whatever in the wood. But also, isn't it a kind of a communication? Don't you hear uh, on a hollow tree, there? it's also a, a bit like a, what is that called, a contact call saying, hey, I'm here, I'm here. Is, is that part of why woodpeckers peck? Yeah, absolutely. So probably... Uh, it originated, just as you said, for looking for food, right? And they developed really strong bills and very interesting head morphology. But a lot of what we call cues, so cues are things that animals produce as a byproduct of their behavior, but that can contain information. Mm. So when a woodpecker pecks, it, you know, if it had predators around, it would want to not make a lot of sound, right? Because it can attract attention. If it's not too worried about predation, that cue can become what we call ritualized. So they can do it now outside of its normal context to intentionally, and when I say intentionally, I mean evolution has selected for, the, the bird is probably not necessarily thinking about doing it. That cue can then become what we call a signal. A signal is something that has evolved to transmit information between two individuals, usually of the same species. Mm -hmm. And so you'll see sometimes woodpeckers land up on a house on a weather vane or something metal that's nice and hollow and makes a big ring. And I, I suspect they know there's no food in there, but they'll do it at certain times of the day to announce their presence or sort of stake out a territory. And I just wonder... I don't know if there's any way of figuring this out scientifically, but do birds ever just sing for the pure pleasure of it? Or is it always the contact call and I'm here to, you know, to looking for a mate? It, it probably could be both of those things, right? So a lot, of, a lot of behaviors that animals do can be considered rewarding. So when you do it, there's a dopamine release. It feels good. Yeah. We, we enjoy it. Um, and a lot of times that dopamine release has co-evolved with behaviors that are necessary to, to produce, but maybe don't give the same kind of um, immediate reward that, say, eating a food item might do. But I imagine it would be pleasurable for birds to, to sing, that there's some sort of neurological reward that makes it feel good. And there is a reward, too. I mean, a biological reward for good singers. I'm guessing that uh, a really good mockingbird who has this incredible repertory must become a better candidate to to mate with. Is that a connection? Yeah, that's right. The quality of songs that animals are producing directly relates in some way to their ability to 
either defend a territory or acquire mates. And there's all kinds of different hypotheses about why this might be. Some people uh, su suggest that they might be honest signals of how much energy you have at the time. So if you're up there busy singing, especially early in the morning, it means that you had managed to get enough food during the previous night, the previous day to make it all the way through the night and get up and sing and not spend that time foraging. <laughs> it could be that in some cases, animals have evolved sensory systems for other purposes and things like song or visual displays exploit those sensory systems. So there's um, this classic example in guppies where females really like orange food items because they're high in something called carotenoids like carrots have. It's good for your immune system. It's good for vision. And so the hypothesis is that when a male came along with a mutation that gave him an orange spot, he wasn't necessarily better than other males, but females really liked it because they already liked the color orange. We call that sensory drive. It could also be that it tells you something about their genetics or their developmental history. So song, just like language that humans have, can be very complicated to learn and complicated to produce. And so if you didn't have good parents who didn't give you a lot of food when you were young, your brain probably was busy with other things that you had to do, like telling different parts of your body how to fly and things like that. And you didn't necessarily have time for the leisurely pursuit of learning how to sing. And so it might tell you something about how good your parents were. And there's many, many other hypotheses, too, about why song might be something that tells about the quality of the individual. It's also possible that it, it doesn't, and it's just that it's aesthetically exploiting something that females like. I want to circle back to something you said earlier. The relationship then between humans and where we choose to, uh, well, make music, among other things, we're picking and choosing the same way birds are for where we can hear. Well, like in a crowded restaurant, I, I don't go to restaurants a lot that are too noisy because I can't hear who I'm talking to. Yeah, I think we definitely choose different kinds of acoustic habitats depending on what kind of signaling we're going to do. So if you want to convey speech, you need a, a relatively limited amount of what we call echo because Human vocalizations, they have frequency information. They also have amplitude modulation, so that's timing information. And if there's a lot of echoes, that timing information starts to get smeary, and it makes it much harder to hear. And so if you're in a place like a cave, really hard to understand individual words because that timing information is getting messed up. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, if you're listening to harmonic music, especially things that have long notes where it doesn't matter quite as much if those notes have some overlap, right? If it's not very rhythmic music, a cave with a lot of reverb might be a very nice experience because you're kind of experiencing that sound in three dimensions coming all the way from bouncing off different walls and things like that. Noisy restaurants, that actually gets back to this idea of filters. And as we age, if we have damage to our ears, our filters broaden. And what that means is each part of our ear is picking up more frequencies than it did before. Huh. And what that does is it allows more noise into the system. So if you have a very narrow filter, you're getting the signal you want, but very little noise because you're not picking up all these other frequencies. As we age, our filters broaden, 
and that allows more noise into the system, and that makes it much harder to pick up information. So a lot of folks who um, have only sort of minor levels of hearing loss, they'll do perfectly fine in a quiet space, a space without very much reverb. But when you put them in a noisy environment, that's where it now becomes uh, challenging to pick up information. Wow, I never knew that. So do certain hearing aids work on those principles? Is not so much what they reinforce, but what they try to leave out. Does this uh, affect hearing aid design in any way? Do you know? Yeah, people have been trying to model human hearing for an extremely long period of time, and, and the technology in hearing aids is amazing. I I am not really in that field so much, but I know that um, they've been working very hard on producing algorithms that model what a sort of quote-unquote normal human ear would be like. So modeling what each of the filters is going to be like. So each, you know, if you have microphones that are picking up different frequencies and they're they're slotting them into different bands. And then they're, if you have hearing loss only in certain frequencies, amplifying those bands compared to other bands, mm. um, picking up on sounds from different directions, um, eliminating as much noise as possible. So trying to amplify signals while cutting down on noise. Um, so there's there's all kinds of amazing technology now that goes into to hearing aids. And cochlear implants as well have, have come a long way. That's a good reason why hearing aids cost as some of them, the high-end ones, cost as much as they do. It's not like it's just sticking an amplifier in your ear. You know, it's very more complicated than that. That's right. Yeah, mm. and the original hearing aid was basically a long horn that you would stick into <laughs> your ear, right? And all that did was it picked up more sound by having a bigger opening. Mm. Uh, and so just everything was amplified, but they're much more sophisticated now. Well, I want to circle back to birds uh, just one last time, just to make sure I've got this right. So do birds selectively choose, just the way I might want to choose where I want to have a conversation, birds would choose their environment to, to their advantage. They're going to choose their acoustic environment to the places where it will do the most good for them. Is, is that correct? Yeah, that's very likely. Singing at the right time of day. So you have this thing called the dawn chorus. The dawn chorus usually occurs, we think, at that early hour mm. because it tends to be relatively still then. The air hasn't heated up much, so there's not a lot of wind usually early in the morning. Um, and sometimes you can even get basically what's what's called a sound channel. So if you have dense air up above and the ground below and then a in between relatively less dense air, sound will bounce up and hit that dense air and then bounce back down and hit the ground and travel farther. Mm. You might choose to sing from certain perches or certain um, parts of the canopy to make your sounds um, travel better. Even insects do this. So crickets will find the perfect distance from two corners and start chirping there to amplify their sound as much as they possibly can. Yeah. So animals, we think, are, are choosing microhabitats that are producing sort of the best, the best version of their sound that they, they can. And likely they've also evolved sounds and auditory systems that match the kind of acoustic habitat that they are usually found in. So here we are in our own little microhabitat, perched in the world of podcasting, where hopefully this broadcast will be shared with other uh, sentient beings and we'll mix in some birdsong too. Listen, this has been a wonderful 
far-reaching, I, I think, you know, not only going into the weeds, but hovering above them. And uh, <laughs> I want to thank you uh, for a great conversation, and I hope at some other point we can continue it and, and have you back. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, it's been a pleasure for me as well, Jim. Our thanks to Megan Gall. Now, if you have any secrets or stories about listening that you'd care to share with us, we'd like to hear from you. Visit our website, PulsePlanet.com, and click on the contact button. That's PulsePlanet.com. I'm Jim Metzner, and this is The Pulse of the Planet.